Yeah. That, I said at first service, I said, uh, anybody sense a little extra Holy Spirit power on the worship team this morning? <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. Thank you guys so much. So much. Well, it's good to be back with you so quickly. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, praise God and, and all the people through whom he worked. Uh, didn't, have to, didn't have to go this way, but he was very, very good to me. So I want to start this morning with a uh, true story. Ten years ago, she had an abortion. She was a teenager. She was scared. Somehow, even at the time, she knew that it wasn't right, but in a swirl of fear and confusing emotions and backed up by a group of well-meaning friends, she did it anyway. Now, 10 years later, she's married and she's pregnant and she's plagued by guilt and fear. Will God now punish her for taking that life? Is she even allowed to pray for the health and the well-being of this baby? Would God really listen to a mother who did what she did? Will God take the life of her second child or make the second child handicapped or something horrible to avenge the life of the first? She lives in constant fear. Another true story. Man sits beside the bed of his dying wife. A brain tumor has consumed her completely. Only the machines are keeping her alive this day so that the rest of the family can arrive and say their final goodbyes. The pastor arrives to pray for them. He likes the pastor, but truthfully, he hardly knows the pastor, and and there's a reason for that. They hardly went to church. They had a lake house. They loved to travel. They were fortunate to make it once a month or even even once over the entire course of the summer. But suddenly sitting in this room with his his, uh, dying wife and the pastor, this, this, this question explodes into his mind. He tries to resist it. He tries to push it away, but he can't. He's got to know, did he bring this curse on his wife? Pastor, the man says, Did this happen to us because we don't come to church enough? So we all do evil things. We all do careless things. We all value the wrong things at different seasons of our life. We all do it. I do it. You do it. We all do it. But when it all goes bad, we just want the answer to one question. How does God handle us wicked, careless Creatures with our priorities out of whack. When it all goes bad, we just want to know the answer to that question. So we're going to go seeking the answer to that question. And and we're going to begin in the Old Testament in one of the best known stories in human history. uh, The story of Noah and the ark. uh, The great flood of Genesis. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn with us to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. It begins this way. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. 
And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry around on the ground, even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So as you keep reading the account, God tells Noah that he's going to be spared along with all of his sons and their wives, but to survive, they must build a three-deck ship that's over 450 feet long. That's half the length of Titanic. And on this boat will come two of every animal, mammals, birds, reptiles, bugs, all of it. Bet it smelled great. (laughs) Noah, it says, is 600 years old when he builds this boat. Once it is complete, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. The scriptures also say that geysers break through the earth's crust and rain down from the sky. The waters rose 22 feet over the highest mountain, drowning every living thing, and stood that way for 150 days. The ark runs aground on a mountaintop. Noah starts releasing ravens and then doves to see if they can find land anywhere. Finally, 10 months after entering the boat, they're able to leave it. Noah worships God. He makes an offering, and God gives Noah a covenant. God gives Noah a promise, and that's what we've come to discuss today. But before we get to the main event, I've taught on Noah before, and I have gotten some feedback that I upset some folks by not answering some certain uh, questions that folks had. So we're going to do that first. I want to answer some of these questions that you have had that I have left unaddressed in the past. So one of the questions was, if this great flood happened, when? Okay, and the answer is that the the Bible does not really say when. Now, I know that there are people out there who can tell you they can give you the exact date of the flood. I'm not going to wait all through that. I'll just say I don't agree with the reasoning that they're using. Uh, We can tell from this account that this clearly happened during the time when there are humans on the earth. But it might be really quite an old story. It might be 10,000 years before Christ. It might be older than that. Another question you had was, if Noah was a real person, where in the world is he? Now, about that, almost everyone agrees um, that this account is coming from Mesopotamia. Remember seventh grade social studies? All right, here's your map. Mesopotamia is this region. Oh, you you colored it in with your colored pencils. Uh, It is the region between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers in what we today call Iraq. This is where Noah is. Next question. Is there any scientific geological evidence for a flood of this magnitude anywhere around this time period? Okay. Oh, we can get in the deep weeds really fast on this one. But I'm just going to cut to the chase. I'm going to shoot the answer to you as straight and as clear as I can. I am not a geologist. So I can read geologists that say there is ample evidence for a global flood during this time period. And it sounds great to me. 
And I can read another geologist that says there is absolutely no scientific evidence of a global flood at this or any point in history. And it's pretty convincing. See, I don't have the geology to tell you which one of them is using better science. Now, when I get into this on biology, I got them. But geology, oh. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. Now, but here's what we, (laughs) Scooby-Doo was a little too much, wasn't it? Uh, Okay, here's what I do know. In fact, here's what anyone in this room can know with your cell phone within five minutes. Here's what we do know, that this region of the world is prone to flooding. In fact, it's called the Fertile Crescent. Remember that from seventh grade? Because floodwaters laid down fertile deposits such that in this sweep, this crescent-shaped sweep, you can grow crops and graze animals. And this is, even though the rest of it's a desert, because of floodwaters. And so this is why uh, this is also called the what? Cradle of civilization, right? This is where humanity begins. Here's what else. While I'm writing this sermon a couple of months ago, while I'm writing it, NPR and all sorts of other news sources are filled with stories of this dam in Mosul, Iraq, right? Mosul that ISIS currently controls. And here's the problem. The dam's in bad shape. And if, the, if ISIS does not either repair it or maintain it or let people in and repair it and maintain it and let them keep their heads, the dam will break. The dam, they said, would unleash a wall of water 45 feet high, which would sweep from Mosul possibly all the way to Baghdad, making puddles along the way 100 feet deep, burying entire villages. They estimate it would wipe out 80% of the population of Iraq in about three days. That's today. Any of you could look that up. So at least, at least we can agree on this. For this region, there were probably floods in ancient times that could wipe out all or mostly all of the people that the tellers of this story would know about. Possibly all the people living on the earth at that time, if it was early enough in the cradle of civilization, except for Noah and his family. A regional catastrophic flood doesn't stretch anyone's boundaries of believability. It's not only possible, it's probable. Now, I'm not saying the flood was not global. I'm just saying I'm not a geologist. I can't make the arguments. Perhaps some of you are, and you could, so you should. But uh, the the regional flood is well within everyone's bounds of imagination. And that's enough. That's enough to let us go back to reading this text altogether and not have to sit with our arms folded. So let's run with that. Let's run with that. Now, one thing that gets me going on this story, and it also makes me think it might have been a little bigger, uh, is that every culture in this region and most cultures around the world have a flood story like this. Now, maybe they were all just borrowing these stories from each other. However, it's also possible that all of these flood stories came from the memory of one real event that traveled with Noah and his children and his great-grandchildren wherever they went in the world after that. Now, here's a little tidbit. The written versions of these flood stories are older than the written versions of the Bible. 
Now that's something that people will throw up on your Facebook feed and say like, see, that's how you can tell the Bible's fake because you know, everybody has these flood stories and the Bible's not even the oldest one. Okay, that's the type of thing you throw up on social media when you're just educated enough about ancient literature to be dangerous. Because it doesn't really work like that. Because all the stories we read in Genesis were told around campfires by village storytellers and nomads before they were ever written down. And just because this culture wrote it down before this culture wrote it down doesn't mean this culture was telling it before this culture was telling it. I mean, this culture invented writing first. And that's all it tells you. In fact, I'll say this, the, the weakness of the Bible is not uh, its similarity to other stories. The strength of the Bible is the differences when they tell them. Let me say that again. The weakness of the Bible is not its similarities to other cultures, myths, and stories. The strength of the Bible is in the differences in the way they tell it. And, and I, that's what I want to do now. I want to demonstrate this. Now, this is... This is one of, if not the only advantage to having a former Dungeons and Dragons nerd for a pastor. I, there are actually are very few advantages to that. But, uh, but this is one of them. Is that I read every mythology book at every level of grade school and every library I ever occupied. I knew all of these ancient myth stories before I ever read Genesis. So I would just like to go with you. Let's use the Sumerian version because that's Israel's closest neighbors that have a flood story. And I just want to show you the two stories side by side and see what you think. So here we go. The Sumerian flood myth. So in the Sumerian version, there's lots of gods and they look down on humanity and they've always been irritated because humanity kind of popped out of uh, some demon's blood by accident and they never liked them very much. And now they've gotten so numerous that they are noisy. It literally says they became so noisy, they irritated the gods. So the gods say, you know what? I can't take it anymore. Flood them out. And they take a little vow of secrecy among the gods that they're going to do this flood and nobody tell. Well, they have a little WikiLeaks from up there in Sumerian heaven. And the god of water, the rebel god Enki, he comes down and tells this guy, Atra Hasis, he says, Atra, they're getting ready to flood you guys out. So let me teach you how to build this thing called a boat. So he teaches them how to build a boat, which actually is a perfect cube and wouldn't really float, but we're not going to worry about that. Okay, so he teaches them how to build this boat. Well, the gods unleash the flood and then it gets out of control and even the gods are terrified because once they unleash the waters of chaos, even they are powerless to stop it. And, uh, and so they flood all humanity out. Then the gods start getting hungry because what they overlooked was that without humans to sacrifice crops and animals to them, there's no one to feed them. And they're not growing their own crops and slaughtering their own lambs. That's not the way we do things here in Sumerian heaven. So the gods are now starving to death because they flooded out humanity. So they're hiding from the water and they're hungry. Luckily, this one guy, Atrahasi, survived. So it storms for seven days and seven nights. And then this human who survives, he gets out and he makes a sacrifice to the gods. And the gods smell the sacrifice and they all swarm in from everywhere. And, nom, 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 nom. and they're so grateful they're so grateful that they give Atrahasis and his wife a gift. They turned them into gods. And that's why the Sumerians believed that their kings were all descended directly from deities because of this story. And that's why you did what they said. All right. But there's still a problem. They did this to keep the human population in check. So they decide the flood was not a good idea. They correct the problem this way. 
They're going to create three types of women. Women who can have children, women who cannot have children, and a she-demon who looks like a woman, but every time she has children, they'll pass away shortly after birth. And that was their explanation for uh, sudden infant death syndrome and infertility. This is a terrible story. If you're a little Sumerian kid going to Sunday school or whatever they did there, you get around the campfire and here's what you learn about yourself. You are an accident that God's never intended for you to live on earth. And the noise of your chatter once made them so irate, they tried to wipe you out. So keep your voice down. But a rebellious God saved us. And good thing because uh, they forgot that we're their slave labor. Without humans, the gods would have to grow their own crops and cook their own lambs. So someday, little boys and girls, when you grow up uh, and you're out there farming and herding animals, always make a burnt offering to the gods so they'll remember that they uh, need you to feed them. Otherwise, they might get irritated and try to kill you again someday. And remember, once they let loose the waters of chaos, even the gods are powerless to stop it. And next time, there might not be a boat for you. And by the way, the reason why your aunt can't have any children is because she's that kind of woman to control human population. And the reason why your other aunt had a baby that died is because she's a she-demon. Good night. This is a terrible story. Now, the Old Testament version of the flood story has a lot of the same details. They even release ravens and doves at the end and all that sort of thing. But there's some key differences. The Hebrews wandering in the deserts of Cana, later living as slaves of Egypt, and then after that, writing this story down, have a very different version of this story. First, there's only one God, and he is the creator of all. And he fears nothing. He doesn't fear sea monsters. He doesn't fear floods. He doesn't even fear oceans full of water, which Israelites feared because they didn't have an ocean coast. And whenever they saw one, they always went. (laughs) So they they really didn't like that. So uh, in fact, in their story, he tells all the waters of the earth where to go and where they belong. And in their version, humanity is not an accident. God makes humanity on purpose. In fact, says, I'm going to make them like me and calls them very good. The very best thing I made. And I made a lot of cool stuff. He did not let loose the flood to wipe us out because we're too noisy. See, in the pagan version, it kind of sounds like, hey, what did we do? We're just having fun. And then all of a sudden, they kicked water on us. In the Bible's version, it says, that's not why. It was because of human sin. It was because humanity had gone horribly astray. And Genesis alludes and hints at several behaviors like war, uh, sexual abuse, weird religions with child sacrifice. All these things are hinted about in Genesis that we had, as examples, that we had no longer, we were no longer the creatures he hoped we would be. And so it came time to uncreate the world. Except there was Noah. And so, because of one righteous man, God's eager to make a second chance for the human race. So there's no WikiLeaks from the royal throne room. God himself goes down and tells Noah, there's a flood coming and here's how to survive. And when it's all over, God gives this promise. And it's called the covenant of Noah. Uh, And by the way, 
after the flood, he does not try to limit human population by making all these horrible things happen to women in childbirth. In fact, God had one command to Adam and Eve, remember, be fruitful and multiply. I want you guys to spread over the whole earth. Adam, a few weeks ago, said in the sermon, part of the problem at the Tower of Babel is they were trying to resist spreading out. They just wanted to clump up in one city. And God was like, no, I want you to spread out. I want you to fill this world up and make all the noise you want. Someday there may be this, this, this church over in the middle of North America that plays really loud music. That'll be great. Great. No, noise doesn't bother me. And then he gives the covenant of Noah. A Genesis chapter 9. If you have a Bible app, you want to open to Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. That's great. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you my sign. Uh, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, a rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures of the earth. So as my Hebrew teacher in seminary said, So whenever you see a rainbow, you can just say to yourself, God is reminding himself today not to kill us. (laughs) And this becomes the first of many scriptural covenants, promises made by God. That although he could destroy the earth, we, we don't like this, but it's his earth. He made it. As some famous folks have said, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Even though he made it, it's his earth and he made it and he can destroy it, he won't. He will always make a way to be rescued. Human response is called for in this covenant, but the covenant's not based on human response. In Genesis chapter 9, for instance, it says, You must value all life, all animals, all people. But he didn't say, And if you don't, I'll destroy the earth. His promise stands whether we obey it or not. He calls us to love in Genesis and throughout the rest of scripture. But then he loves us, whether we actually obey that or not. Now I'm going to go off script here for a moment and make church a couple minutes longer. But how many of you, when you read the Old Testament, you find this awkward phrase in your Bible repeated continually that says, uh, God's steadfast love, his steadfast love endures forever because of his steadfast love. Who's finding this when you're reading your Bible? And you're wondering, why don't they just say love? Why, why, why? What's the steadfast? Um, okay, some of you may have a different translation. Loving kindness. How many of you find this one? Because of God's loving kindness, his loving kindness endures forever. Who's found this one? All right, who's reading the highfalutin Bibles that say covenant faithfulness? Because of God's covenant faithfulness. Who's, who's reading that Bible? No one in, in Lakeland because not in first service either. That's okay. Because it's all English translations of the same Hebrew phrase. And they're trying to bring out, there's something extra going on here. Because here's the deal. Every king, and actually not just Bible history, all of history, has made this covenant with the people. If you obey me, I'll provide and protect you. 
If you obey me, I'll provide and protect you. But with all kings, it worked like this. If you don't obey me, I will withdraw my protection. In fact, I might even come in there and conquer you. So when God made this covenant with Noah, if you obey me, I'll provide and protect you. They were like, yeah, sure. Every king's made that covenant with us. But then the rest of the Old Testament, they keep breaking their end of the deal. And he keeps providing and protecting. And they went, who is this heavenly king? Who is this that makes the covenant and then when we break it, keeps his end? What steadfast love. What loving kindness. What covenant faithfulness. Who of us, when we make a contract with someone and they break their end, would keep ours? But he, God does this for uh, 10 or more thousand years. They're astonished and we should be astonished too. So they had a special Hebrew phrase and your Bible struggle to get it across. Steadfast love, loving kindness, covenant faithfulness. So, so God's covenant calls us to respond, but it's not based on our response. So we are taking this journey through the Old Testament to find Jesus in these pages. So where is Jesus in this story? Maybe we just found it right there, but let's take the slower journey. Um, Go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you so afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was great calm. And the disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is the only one who can control the chaos of the sea without fear? The disciples remember the story. It's the one true God of Noah. We realize that Jesus is the one who's keeping the covenant of Noah when we read uh, the gospel of John chapter 3 verse 16. But I don't even need to put it up for a lot of you. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come to judge the world and destroy it. He came to rescue it, just like God said he would always provide through the rainbow. Jesus connects himself to the story of Noah. Uh, Go to Matthew chapter 24. I believe verse 37. When the son of, this is Jesus talking, when the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. 
We are again living in times when God can look out over creation into the minds and hearts of humanity and see that our deeds are all evil continually. Now, if you're having a hard time buying that, I don't recommend this, but if you dare, turn on the news tonight and we'll be proven right in the first 10 minutes. And we are warned, don't just bounce through life ignoring this rescue that God is offering in Jesus. Don't just go about your business the way they did in Noah's day. There's a rescue being created on your behalf. You should go find out what it's all about. Don't sit there doing your thing. What's that guy building over there? Find out about this rescue God is offering. Peter describes the rescue of Jesus using the story of Noah. Go way deep into your New Testament to one of the last books written. Not the last, but one of. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So so baptism is your response to the covenant called for from your clean conscience. But that's not what's making it work. What's making it effective is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it calls for your response, but it's not based on your response. It's based on something God is doing and something God did. First with Noah, then through Jesus. The promise God made to all creation to always provide an ark, to always provide a rescue, that promise is kept in Jesus And he came not because we are getting it all right. He came, the scriptures say, while we were still sinners. Right in the middle of it. Even though we don't get it all right, he keeps his end of the promise anyway. And that picture of God matters a great deal to that expectant mother. Even though she terminated an innocent life a decade ago, what she now has come to believe is a very great sin. This tells her God is not a God bent on destruction. Now, if the Sumerians are right, if a lot of modern world religions are right, she's in big trouble. But if this version, if this picture of God created through the Hebrew scriptures and exemplified in the person of Jesus, if this is who God really is, then he's coming to hold out his hand to to show her a way out of the world of fear and dread she lives in. She only did that because she was afraid. She was afraid she couldn't provide. She didn't know the promises of God and that he would provide. So she confesses her sins and she asks for forgiveness. And, And now through the cross, through communion, which she can have almost every week, through baptism, she has these timeless symbols of this reality of this invisible grace of God that's always flowing toward her. He is the ark bearing her away from death and into life. And not because she earned it and not because she deserved it, but because God in his mercy, God in his Steadfast love and his loving kindness and his covenant faithfulness 
promised he would not destroy. And God is always faithful to his promises. And this story is very important to that man that I had to look at in the face there in the ICU. Just me and him and his wife on the ventilator. As he looked me in the face with all seriousness and asked me if God was killing his wife because they hadn't come to church enough. And I was able to look him back in the eye with the full authority of these scriptures and say, God is not that way. Church, you see, is for you. It's a gift for you. There are good reasons to come to church. People who don't come to church, they wander off and they get into all sorts of messes. People who don't come to church then have the voice of the world very loud in their ears and begin to value other things that aren't important. They put the last things first and the first things last. And their priorities get all out of whack. But church is not a task for pleasing God. He doesn't destroy lives because they don't show up at church. Church is his gift to us. We destroy our own life by not coming to drink from this well of community and, and, and these scriptures and these symbols. When we don't drink from that, that's what makes us off track. That's what gets our priorities out of whack. That, that's what causes us to destroy ourselves. But God, he's a rescuer. That's what God is. He's a rescuer. And if you still want to be rescued by him, then you haven't wandered too far away yet. And by the way, I told him, I think you will need to come to church to mourn your wife and and to help you with your grief and to answer your most difficult questions and to rebuild your relationship with God. But you're going to find it's a relationship that he wants. Now, if you're going to leave today thinking this is a sermon to comfort those who have had abortions and don't come to church very often, then you're you're going to miss the boat. Because those are just examples of people who are in a flood of chaos and loss. What you really should be asking yourself right now is, what flood of chaos and loss are you in? What rescue do you need? And then to know that he promised to build an ark for you in this flood. And he always, always, always keeps his promises. The word of the Lord. So we talked a little bit about this symbol of communion. So if the, if the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist, so many names. Um, if, you'll, if you'll come forward and prepare that. See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he, he takes bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And here's the crazy thing. You guys are the one who are going to break it. This is my body broken for you and humanity who I came to save are the ones who are going to break it. Now, this is how far I'm going to go to save you. There's nothing that can keep you from the love of God. You're going to nail me to this cross. And while you're doing it, I'm going to pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And and it's your sin that's going to pour it out. What more can God do to say, I am a rescuer? 
And ironically, it's the love that changes us. We thought it was the threats of the covenant. You can find these Bible passages where if you don't obey God, you know, terrible things are going to happen. That's more like a, a telling you just how it's going to go. But we think those are threats to make us behave. That doesn't really change people, does it? You, like when you're raising toddlers, you can get away with that for a while. You know, don't, don't, don't touch that. Don't, don't stick cookies in the, in the, in the Blu-ray or or I'll give you a swat, or I'll give you time out, or I'll limit your screen time, or whatever your consequence of choice is. And it works, kind of. Uh, keep trying that when they're teenagers. If it works, you just get compliance, but you've lost their heart completely. At that point, they need to know of your covenant faithfulness, of your steadfast love, of your loving kindness. That even when they break their end of the deal, if you obey me, I'll protect and provide that you do it anyway. And, and suddenly that is what actually changes them. That's what changes us. We see Jesus on the cross. We've heard of hell. We've heard of the threats. We've heard all that stuff. It's all there. It didn't change us. It's the love that says, wait, that's how far you'll go? Okay, I can, I can do better than this. I want to do better than this. I had no idea you loved me that much. It's the love that changes us. Try it in all your relationships because we learned it from God. So when you come forward and you tear off a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup, you receive covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, all the promises of Noah kept through Jesus. So uh, let us stand together and we'll have a prayer. And then you can come forward when you're ready. I'm going to do that song again. Sing it if you know it. If you don't understand it, just keep listening to it because I promise before this series is over, you're going to understand every word. But uh, Let's pray together. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood. My Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Come forward when you're ready. Let us pray. Father, we help us to surrender all to you. More than anything, help us to surrender our fear, our fear of this world. Help us to surrender our fear of you. Help us to surrender these other pictures of you that we've gotten from other places that look nothing like Jesus. Help us to see that his words are true. He who has seen me has seen the Father. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, let us stand together and we'll say the words of the Celtic uh, blessing over one another. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next Sunday or the Sunday after. Go in peace.